0: I was born in Saudi Arabia in 1996. I-, I can't even tell you the first time I realized I was trans because I did not really have a concept of that. Uh, I think I was like getting ready for my kindergarten class, and I was staring in the mirror, and I was just overcome with emotion. Like something felt wrong. I, I definitely was experiencing gender dysphoria. I did not know why I was getting treated differently than my brothers. If I chose to transition, I would lose my family. I would be putting my life at risk because Saudi has anti-LGBT laws that are really, really bad. It's like one of the countries where you can be killed for being LGBTQ.
1: You're listening to Minding the Brain, with Dr. Kim Hellemans and Dr. Jim Davies. Episode 25, Gender and the Brain. While some of us may not question our gender identity, for example, we feel male in a male body or female in a female body. There is a significant proportion of the population that do not identify with the gender that they were assigned at birth. Today on Winding the Brain, we will be tackling the topic of gender. What it is. How gender is determined in the brain. And how might brain development differ in individuals who are either trans, gender fluid, or non-gender conforming. We have two guests on our show today. Gareth Rurak, who is a PhD candidate in the Department of Neuroscience here at Carleton, working under the supervision of Dr. Natalina Salmaso, and Matt Alnisi, an undergraduate student in neuroscience. So first of all, Kim, for our listeners, it's probably good to define some terminology here. Is there a difference between sex and gender?
2: There absolutely is. Um, Gareth, would you like to illuminate our audience a little bit more about what is the difference between sex and gender?
3: Yeah, so I guess traditionally when we think about sex and we think about male and female, um, a lot of people do think about kind of what your genitals are, right? Um, But I think that sex is a lot more complicated than that.
2: The saying that I use when I'm teaching is, sex is what's between your legs and gender is what's between your ears, right? So uh, our genitals can tell us one thing about who we are, but uh, another aspect of our identity is our our gender, which is more relating to how masculine or how feminine we might feel, right? Yeah,
3: exactly. So that's where it becomes so much more complicated because I mean, gender is just the whole spectrum. I mean, it's gone back even from, when you think about sexual orientation to begin with, with Alfred Kinsey and he had the whole Kinsey scale. Um, And I think that gender also exists on a continuum and like whether there is an actual two end points or some points in between or whatever, it just kind of illustrates the complexity and beauty of kind of the diversity that we have in our gender identities. I mean,
2: this is the whole point of this podcast today is really to try to educate around the continuums of sexuality and gender and to acknowledge that gender may not exist as a binary, right? So there may well be people who don't identify with a specific gender or who might some days identify female, some days identify male. Um, And as you said, we're just starting to understand more of sort of the biological processes that may well underlie gender. but I think it is important to start that conversation today because when we say that gender is a purely a sociological construct, I think that that might mean that we can open into that and and perhaps argue that uh, the changes in gender identity are not necessarily real and they are formed entirely by our social uh, social realities. And I think that there is more to it than that.
3: I mean, this has been a debate for a long time, and um, and it even goes back to. Uh, the money experiments, this uh, researcher, John Money, he tried to socialize a gender into an individual. And long story short, it didn't work. Um, So just because you are kind of socialized or reared as like one gender, it doesn't necessarily mean that that's how you're going to identify. And that's not going to be what makes you who you are. Um, And so it's nice to kind of have these conversations like you're talking about to kind of illustrate the fact that, yeah, it's not a social thing this is not something that is socialized into us this is something that is inherent to our biology and who we are
2: Right, and it's not to say that society or social influences do not play a role; they do, uh, but it's not a hundred percent socialization. And so, just to clarify, what uh, Gareth was alluding to was um, a very sad, tragic tale of a young boy named David Reimer who was born to parents uh, in Manitoba, I believe, in the '60s. I can't remember the exact uh, year, but uh, they what happened was they uh, tried to have him circumcised, and it was a it was the individual doing it was using a new technique it resulted in a botched circumcision where the the penis was destroyed perhaps beyond use and so in a decision uh, by the family and the, and the, the doctors they decided to uh, instead um, render more female genitalia and then try to raise him as a boy or as a girl and he had a twin brother who was raised uh, as a boy, and then he was raised as a girl, Brenda. Uh, and then it wasn't until he was uh, at the ages of 10 to 11. Uh, so he had undergone all this, uh, as Gareth was alluding to, this therapy with this guy, John Money, uh, who was, again, trying to prove that gender was sociologically constructed. And by engaging uh, Brenda as uh, in, in typical girl-related behaviors, that would turn her into a girl uh... and turn him into a girl and uh... it it failed miserably uh... uh, david had lots of suicidality, depression, all throughout his childhood uh, life. And at the age of, I think, around 11, he was finally told by his parents what happened. Uh, and this led him on a completely different path. He then gender-identified as a boy, was, was uh, existing um, uh, in, with very male features, male construct, uh, and then very sadly and tragically committed suicide, um, probably, perhaps, due to uh, a lot of these uh, these issues. So, uh, again, I think the point is to illustrate that gender is not a hundred percent sociological. We, you know, this is anecdotal, but at least this gives us some um, answers, right?
3: Of course, and even in that example, like that kind of, we can allude to the not purely socio- like sociological, but it's not also purely biological. They tried to suppress the natural hormones that um, he was having as being born a male having natal sex as a male and so they were using estrogen therapies and stuff and it's it goes beyond that it's uh it's beyond the what you're doing personally it's how your brain develops almost you develop in a way like even before you're born your brain is developing and it develops in this kind of on this continuum of sex and gender so sex is determined differently than gender how does that work When people think of sex, they often think of male female, which is traditionally classified as XX or XY. And so when you have that Y chromosome, it does kind of initiate this whole cascade of events. Um, And it starts with kind of this first critical period, is what they like to call it. Um, So we start developing very early on, I think this is in like the second trimester of pregnancy or even first, um, where you start developing the external genitalia. So when you have the Y chromosome, your genitalia will start to develop into testes and a penis. So you will begin to also produce testosterone. The females, however, they don't have that kind of active factor. So um, someone who is natally female, they don't have that um, endogenous testosterone that the males do.
2: In case our listeners aren't aware, the default sex is female of uh, of, uh, in humans and I'm not I'm not sure about other mammalian species but in the default is female so in utero we have we can we have the primordial um, uh, genital uh, structures that can develop either into ovaries and and a vulva and vagina or the testes and the penis and so what happens in 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 the presence of a female it, it initiates a cascade of, uh, to sort of promote the development of the malarian ducts, which are the primordial female uh, genitals. And, but in, in males, with the Y chromosome and the SRY gene, what it does is two things. It stops the, the development of the female and initiates the development of the male. So anti-malarian hormone blocks the, the female um, Uh, progression, and uh, other hormones are there to promote the Wolfian ducts.
3: So yeah, that's where we get that disconcordance. You have that first initial critical period, as I was saying earlier. Um, So that's kind of the development of that external genitalia, which we traditionally kind of classify people, uh, in quotations, classify uh, between male and female. But after that, you get kind of, you move into the brain and that's when your nervous system starts to develop and that's where we can kind of see some differences.
2: So both males and females secrete testosterone and estradiol, right? They, they synthesize and release that in the bloodstream, right? And then it travels up into the brain?
3: Or yes, but early on, it's only the males. So like um, when the males have the testes that are developing, they actually are pretty, act- they have a very active um testosterone secretion going on early um during development whereas the females since they are developing ovaries and you don't have really have as much estrogen production uh until you go through puberty so it's almost as if there's for for sake of simplicity there's kind of um no hormone exposure really in the females during this early developmental period whereas the males have this hormonal inframo- influence. Yeah. I
2: see so testosterone is secreted gets up into the brain and then as you're saying it's then converted uh, into estrogen.
3: So it's actually um, the testosterone is converted uh, into the estrogen from aromatase and that estrogen acts on neural tissues uh, through estrogen receptors and it facilitates a whole host of branching some cell death in some areas and um, we can see this in uh, some areas of the brain that kind of have a more male signature um, based on this estrogen activity early on. The alpha 5 reductase is actually, it converts testosterone into dihydrogen testosterone, which is a more potent androgen. Um, And so the dihydrogen testosterone is actually very important for um, kind of continuing the masculinization of the body Uh, it does act in the brain i don't think there's much research on how it acts in the brain Um, but it also brings in there's an interesting point about um, a population in uh, the dominican republic called maki which means uh, first girl then boy Um, and this population has um they're deficient in this alpha five alpha reductase so they essentially can't convert as much testosterone into DHT Um, and for all intents and purposes they have an XY chromosome complement so if you want to define that as a male then they're born a male Um, however when they're born they their external genitalia hasn't been masculinized to the same extent that uh, someone without this 5-alpha reductase deficiency has so they are born with kind of this intermediate genital area, um, so it mostly looks like a female typical genital. And these people are born, um, and they kind of assume they're females, uh, and so they're kind of raised as females. But they kind of seem to be tomboyish, as a lot of them like to call them, um, until they get to puberty when you have this surge in um, testosterone again, and this surge in testosterone is enough to kind of continue masculinizing uh, the body, and so. They get the development of the penis from their female-presenting genitalia, uh, and it's normal for that population, and then these individuals actually continue to identify as males uh, when they get older. So that's kind of this weird disconcordance you get between that external genitalia, uh, the social rearing, and then actually your sex that you can kind of represent in the brain, which I think is and i think
2: that's an important point to demonstrate that the 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 brain development and the genital development development can be as you say discordant right that's to me what does in, in fact sometimes distinguish really gender as being something that can be uh a co- that, that is held within the brain and the mind right that you because of the combination of these hormones um acting on the brain development uh, and in some ways, in interesting divergences from what would be quote unquote natural, we can have a female presenting individual until puberty uh, and in this population because they have a lower activity of that alpha five uh, reductase, meaning that they don't develop physically as boys until, pu- until puberty, but they gender identify as boys probably from the get go, right? And so, just out of curiosity, is it existing in this population because it is like a, a recessive gene on a sex-linked gene?
3: I'm not sure exactly what where um, this mutation is, but it is a, a genetic mutation. So the it's that they have um, the enzyme the the five alpha reductase is just deficient in. Actually, converting this testosterone, and I think that because it's a it's a small island population, uh, mostly to the indigenous people that were living there, um, or are living there. Um, we, you kind of see this kind of like bottleneck effect where it becomes more prevalent in their society. I'm sure that these there's probably incidences of this 5-alpha reductase in other people as well uh, through other populations, but just because it's the, the way that genetics and population genetics works, it kind of becomes more prevalent in this society. And
2: then I assume, um, or I shouldn't assume, are these individuals uh, embraced within society?
3: Yeah, from what I've read, I, it looks like like, it's just a normal part of life. And because they've been dealing with it for so long, it's like um, like th- this mutation has existed for a long time and they just, it's a normal thing. That's why they have an even term for them, Yeah, right?
2: so it's like a normal variation, quote-unquote normal. It's, a, it's mm-hmm. a variation of gender, right?
1: Exactly. And so there are different parts of the brain that represent gender versus sexuality?
3: Obviously, we can't use animal models for this because this is, it might not necessarily be a human-specific... Phenomena, but we can't really ask a mouse how it feels about its gender um, So it's interesting when you look at these studies because a lot of them are post-mortem or they are um, Kind of imaging studies um, and so there's a researcher dick swab and he's from uh, the Netherlands research institute And he's he was the director of the brain uh, Bank that they had in the Netherlands for a long time and he was kind of the pioneer on a lot of these um uh, transgender studies and looking at um, transgender male and female brains and seeing how they compared to um, I guess cisgendered uh, individuals and so that, that nucleus of the stride terminalis seemed to be like that one region that really stuck out um, and essentially a transgender male had a similar size and similar number of these certain somatostatin neurons um, that a cisgender male had. And the same was true for a transgender female. They had similar size and structure as a cisgender female.
1: I know there are some statistics to suggest that there are more trans men versus trans women, meaning more um, people who were born assigned as women and turned in uh, later transitioned into men. What might explain this?
3: Well, there's no real like theory on this yet, but it seems to be, again, that spectrum. I've had conversations with my supervisor, uh, Dr. Natalie Salmaso, about this as well, um, and just kind of the differences in our society that we have of um, how gender is perceived and how that might play into it. But biologically, there are also some other explanations that you could have as well. Um, specifically like we were talking about earlier how that kind of female reproductive development is kind of the default Um, and so like there's no influences that are kind of affecting that whereas when you have that Y chromosome you begin this kind of active process and so that active process might have a lot more sensitivity let's say maybe the critical periods are a little more sensitive to change so, if you get kind of a disruption, or not even a disruption, just something a little bit different early on, it might skew the trajectory way greater than you would see it in um, a quote unquote normal individual.
2: So, that to me is the way that I've, I've perceived gender differences in the brain is that uh, it, it is more uh, the female is kind of like the default. And then um, throughout the process of development, which is a, is it, Multitude of cascades, where specific proteins have to be, you know, synthesized and follow a specific uh, uh, direction, and they have to bind to specific receptors that are broken down by specific enzymes, and so on and so forth. So you can imagine. The number of different ways, much like an orchestra, where you have, you know, a hundred instruments and each instrument is playing a specific tune, following a specific tempo and being cued at a specific time, that at any point one thing could change the, the sound of, of, of that symphony. Uh, and in the same way, the brain could be slightly skewed, more masculine or more feminine depending on that sort of orchestra of signaling in, in the brain. Uh, so yeah, I really I, I, I do appreciate these sort of um, nuances to brain development. And as you say, so, so, you know, social constructs can can play a role, but um, I do believe that our you know be, even based on anecdotally, you sp- speak to trans folks, uh, their experience of feeling male or female does begin very early on in, in some. In others, that feeling can occur later in life. But just because it occurs when you're 30 doesn't mean that it's it hasn't been there. Like there's a lot of active processes to guide us into our gender assigned at birth, right? Um, so switching gears a little bit, um, it is, do you think there are specific myths or um, distorted beliefs or concepts that uh, as a society that you want to kind of dispel? Uh, are there things around gender that you think, you know, given your research and your experience in uh, the studies of, of these kinds of uh, topics, are there things that you you hear sometimes and you're like, nah, let me put yeah. you to rights?
3: Uh, I think that honestly, I think the biggest one is that people who think that, like, gender identity is, like, kind of, no. There's no gender identity. It's, like, a, you You are a boy, you are a girl. And it's, like, I think that that is kind of the biggest frustrating thing. And I will say that in our scientific community, I think there's a huge discordance between people who... Even understand what the difference between sex and gender is, and I think. Well, that,
2: yeah, even my bugbear is seeing um, papers published um, where they say yes. gender differences, and I'm like, nope, you're looking at sex differences, or vice versa.
3: Educate yourself. Understand the difference between what sex and what gender are, and what they actually mean. Um, there's a there's a ton of resources out there, and you can find them anywhere. Um,
2: and you'll find I, them on our minding the brain podcast.com. We'll have a lot of resources available to our listeners on gender and sex.
3: Yeah. One of the really interesting things I saw someone speak earlier this year uh, is at a sex differences conference in Washington. Um, And she she was a transgender female, but used to be a professor at Stanford, I believe. Um, And she basically dedicated her life to going around and studying these transgender populations throughout the world. And I think that in Western society we have a very different ideal than a lot of um, indigenous communities from like Asia or the Polynesian Islands specifically have of what gender is. And I think we have a long way to go as society to kind of understanding that the complexity of this gender spectrum is something that we should be celebrating and not necessarily trying to categorize into whatever we want to categorize it as.
1: So let's do a bit more of a deep dive into how gender dysphoria might be experienced. Kim, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, so I do want to introduce a little bit more to our listeners, uh, our next guest, um, because as someone who is, I would identify as a cishet het female, meaning that I'm cisgendered, uh, and that means that I identify with the gender I was assigned at birth. Uh, I'm also heterosexual, meaning that I'm attracted to members of the opposite sex. Uh, This, I would say that I'm somebody that follows um, gender and sexual societal norms. Uh, So I think it's really important that we have somebody in our studio today that can uh, bring their experiences as someone who doesn't follow those norms and instead is on that gender continuum. Uh, So I'd like to introduce uh, Matt Alanese. Uh, and I think it's important that, you know, our listeners know that Matt was actually born in Saudi Arabia, where being LGBTQ plus is illegal. So you can put in jail or you can even be beaten or tortured if you do identify as anything other than c- cis, het, male or female. Um, so, Matt, do you want to tell us? Um, about that moment when you first realized that you were trans?
0: I remember the first time I actually ever seen a trans person. It was on TV. I couldn't have been older than four or five. Uh, It was a trans woman and they were like making a big show of showing before and after. And I turned to my mom and said that I wanted that. I wanted that, but I wanted the opposite. And she just kind of dismissed it. She did not want to acknowledge that I said that.
2: And you were thinking, yeah, that's what I want, Mom. Right? And yeah.
0: I remember because like uh, it, it was back 2006 and it was during the World Cup. And I was like talking to family friends about how I'm going to be a soccer player. Everyone's like, well, women can't play soccer. How are you going to do it? I was like, well, I'll just, quote unquote, pretend to be a man and they won't find out. And they made fun of me uh they thought it was funny because i was young you know kids say the silliest things but yeah i, I still remember that and i still remember that feel. i did not know what binding was but i was like maybe i could hide my chest somehow uh i think that was the first time i used a really terrible method of binding which was really unsafe so you actually were starting to try
2: yeah 10 at age of 10. yeah yeah wow
0: um it was terrible, and I would not recommend anyone use uh, ace bandages because they are not made for that.
2: And that can, yeah, it can compress like a yeah and to it can break of-
0: your ribs and yeah, yeah. It, it's horrible. But you know, uh, I was young, I did not know better. I did not have access to information, which is, and I did not have access to any of that information until the Internet. Uh, when I became a teenager, I kind of um, basically lived on the internet. <laughs> uh, it was the only place where I could, where I felt safe, where I could express myself. Uh, school was horrible. Home was horrible. My parents was abusive. My brothers were awful. Um, I had no one except the friends I made on the internet. And it became my coping mechanism. Um, were
2: you were you out to those friends? Was there a, a chat group or? Uh,
0: we were on Twitter, and for years, none of us really had the word for it. We just knew that I was more like a boy, and it was like part of many jokes until like around 2012, when um, information just kind of spread like wildfire and. It was insane because we were coming out one after the other. <laughs> it was a really wild time. I It took me a while to um, be able to say that I was trans. I think until my second year in university, I was using different terms because I thought that once I say that there's no going back, if I need to trick myself or like to be content with other terms and to be content with living my life as a woman because I did not have any other option because if I chose to transition I would lose my family I would be putting my life at risk because Saudi has anti-LGBT laws that are really really bad it's like one of the countries where you can be killed for being LGBTQ
2: and sadly, I would say for many trans folks, coming out as non-gender conforming can be exceptionally traumatic. Um, Matt, do you want to talk about your experience coming out to someone um, for the first time?
0: The first person I told was uh, someone in my floor, and she did not take it well. She got really angry, really upset, told me that God makes no mistakes, that I'm a girl and I need to come to terms with that. Better. Oh, my so I was reluctant to tell anyone after that uh, aside from my internet friends who started like using my, my name, Matt, and they were using my proper pronouns. And I remember it was like, um, the moving out week in residence when I told my friend who's with me in the booth that I was trans. I was really nervous. I expected rejection. I think I was on the verge of tears. and she was amazing about it
2: and so um at what point did you start taking testosterone
0: uh it was after i came out to my mom and we'll get into that uh i actually started two years ago um <laughs> few few days ago was my second year anniversary on tea and we celebrated i never thought i could be on tea because of the whole saudi thing
2: what's the process involved with going on testosterone what has to happen
0: I went to my doctor and spoke to her about that. She referred me to um, this amazing endocrinologist who was not able to help me because I needed to see a therapist to approve that. Mm. And um, I went to Centertown. I met this counselor there who told me that in a few months he could give me a call and I could do my intake and start tea. He approved me to go on testosterone after a counseling session.
2: How did it make you feel? Like, did you did you feel a change? It was
0: strange because, like, once I started testosterone and started seeing the changes, I started also being more comfortable with mm. my uh, my identity—not just as a trans man, but as someone assigned female at birth, and someone who went through. A lot of stuff because I was assigned female at birth, because I was perceived as a woman. It was freeing, honestly. Hmm. Even if maybe one day down the line I would want to stop taking testosterone, it doesn't matter because it was the right call at that Mm -hmm. moment. Mm -hmm. It, It helped with my dysphoria. It helped with my mental health.
2: What about what happened when you came out to your mom?
0: Yeah, I came out to my mom over Skype. My brother convinced me to after I came out to him.
2: And how did he Uh, take it?
0: He took it super well. Yay! uh, But I realized he was playing me. Oh. He he wanted um, something to use against my mom because I was a straight-A student. I kind of thrived, and my mom um, kept telling them that they should look at me, they should be more like me, and it made them resent me in a way. And he wanted leverage. He wanted... um, Something to be like, see, your perfect daughter is not as perf- perfect as you think she is. Mm. Uh, uh, I believed him. He told me that he's always known that I was trans. Uh, and I actually believe that because I know that despite my mom's denial, she knew. And I know she still knows. But um, I came out to my mom. It was over Skype and it was awful. There was a lot of yelling, a lot of tears, a lot of threats. A lot of it w- were along the line of, uh, I'd rather you be dead than trans. I was forced to return to Saudi. She uh, told me if I don't return willingly, then she'll have someone drug me and kidnap me. And believe it or not, someone in the family had that done to. Mm-hmm. And she was imprisoned for a while. She mm-hmm. still can't leave Saudi. because. So of
2: that. you did go home.
0: Yeah, I didn't have a choice. I went home and it was uh, a lot of abuse, a lot of threats. At one point, my brother just pointed a gun at me. Uh, I was not just at risk from my family, but from the government. And my mom knew that and she used it to scare me into not being myself.
2: So when you were at home in Saudi during this time, so the summer between your second and third year, were you presenting were you male
0: I it was before I went on testosterone but my hair was short I remember because I cut my hair uh, the day after I had the phone call with my mom Mm. the Skype call I was like screw it you know after your own mother rejects you like that it kind of makes you a bit more immune to what other people might think I remember at one point uh, I was back in Saudi, she took my medications away from me, Uh, you know, a method of control. She uh, put me on birth control. (laughs) She thought it was a hormonal thing, that Uh. if she put me on birth control, I would stop being trans. Hmm. She also thought if she threatened me with forced marriage and having people force themselves on me, corrective rape and all that, that I will turn back. At one point, um, I, I'm pretty sure she did this as to show her power. She, um, there's this thing that we use. It's called halawa. It's um, it's like wax to remove hair. Yeah. She used that and she did it so violently that the hair on my legs still doesn't really grow properly in some spaces. Uh, she told me that day that uh, I, that she can do whatever she wants to me, that I have no autonomy, that she could uh, turn me in, she could have me tortured until I be the person she wants me to be.
2: I'm so incredibly sorry. Sounds an incredibly traumatic...
0: It was... Uh, I managed to come back. I, She made me promise that I'll stop being queer, hm. which did not work so well. Yeah,
2: that, that's, <laughs> that's working well. <laughs> so when's the last time you saw her?
0: Uh, that summer, 2016. 2016. I don't plan on going back. I got my asylum, mm. and I have my life here, and it hurts sometimes, like, Thinking of how if something might happen to her, I cannot be there for her. Mm. But I mean, I love her still, despite despite everything. She's my mom, and she did her best. Mm. This like you know, she just maybe part of it is she wanted to protect me from the society she lived in.
2: It's it's. Beautiful of you to express your love for her in that way. I think that's that's the mark of uh, healing. Healing when we can forgive others, right? And we can extend that compassion to somebody who may have hurt us. That's that's when we can grow out of that trauma um, and make sense of the trauma. So I think you're you're working on it. Yeah. Uh, and that's. I mean-
0: I realize now it's not on me. I'm only responsible for that's right. my own actions, not other people's actions. I. Does she try to contact you? She does occasionally. She's been nicer. Hmm. Well, uh, in denial, but nicer.
2: Yeah. Well, maybe we don't know what's down the line. right? Yeah. But as you say, you're living for you. Yeah. That's, that's what you got to do. So on top of the trauma and lack of safety in disclosing a trans identity to family and loved ones, trans folks, I know, I'm sure you can appreciate and agree with this, um, trans folks are at a very high risk of discrimination and violence. According from interviews from the Trans Pulse Project, which we'll be putting some of that on our mindingthebrainpodcast.com website, 96% of trans people have heard that trans people are not normal. 73% were made fun of for being trans. Matt, can you comment a little bit on these statistics and give us your own experiences?
0: Um, A lot of it is we face a lot of rejection from society, from the people who are supposed to love us and accept us. We uh, have to fear for our lives. Uh, at one point, I used to tell myself that I did not want to be just another number.
2: And I think a lot of mental health problems are because trans folks are, are highly oppressed and discriminated against, and which is why I wanted to do this episode to try to dispel some of the myths and educate folks about gender in the brain.
1: Yeah, that, you know, makes a lot of sense. Uh, You know, the homosexuality was considered a mental illness, too, for a while. And part of the justification was that they had depressive symptoms. But, of course, that ignores the fact that in a prejudiced society, you know, being uh, a homosexual did, you know, was depressing because of the way you were treated. So um, I think it's important to separate that stuff just uh, just because there's a high level of mental health issues um, doesn't necessarily mean that the correlate of that is something that causes it. Uh, in right. a direct, in a direct kind of way. Certainly not uh, as a result of the way their brains are set up, like anything. Um, you know, I think a lot of people might be curious about the trans experience, but might be afraid to ask questions. And I think there are some questions that's probably very inappropriate to ask. So, uh, what are what are some questions, Matt, that uh, you should not ask trans folks? Have you had the surgery? Yes.
2: So have you actually had people ask you, what do you have in your pants?
0: Yeah, and I had people asking me what my partners had in their pants.
2: It's like it's like when women are pregnant, right? It's like something comes out, like there's something about the pregnancy and probably being trans that means that suddenly you're open field to be asked all kinds of insensitive topics, right? Like your insensitive grabbed. questions. Or grabbed or touched inappropriately. And then so... Um, Asking somebody what bathroom they use—that is inappropriate.
0: Obviously, going like going to the bathroom is a whole hassle when you're trans. Mm -hmm. Um, It's why trans people have high rates of um, urinary tract tract infections. Sorry, urinary tract infections. (laughs) Really? (laughs)
2: Yeah. They hold Um, it because they don't want to go in public.
0: Yeah, and like you're afraid of like people like calling you out for using the bathroom or I mean I've had that done in Montreal in the train station like just last year which is weird Um, just this guy yell at me and I had I was taking an exam right here when a cleaning lady told me that I can't use the men's room
2: yeah
1: and
0: then told me that I'm too pretty I should not change my gender
2: You can't, you can't see my face, but it's like, (laughs) it's really, it's kind of, Uh, it's insane. All right. Well, let's, let's talk about what are some good questions to ask. If you, if you have somebody in your community that is trans, um, what are some things that, um, you know, are kind and uh, getting to know that, that person and their trans experience in a way that isn't... um,
0: you could ask, Yeah well you could ask them about their pronouns uh, what pronouns they use uh, what terms they're more comfortable with.
2: Do you have any advice for any of our listeners who may have a child that might be undergoing gender dysphoria might be experiencing um, some questioning their gender
0: The first thing you should do is well not react terribly because they're gonna uh try to react calmly try to make sure you they know you love them don't tell them that you love them regardless it's not something that you should love them in spite of it's something that you should just love them love should not be conditional especially if you're a parent your 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 job your your job is not to Love your kid if they fit into certain criteria. Your job is to love and support them and help them be the person they're meant to be, not the person you want them to be.
2: And finally, is there anything that anything that we haven't covered that you want you want our listeners to know about?
0: Well, uh, trans people are trans peoples are <laughs> trans people are not predators. They don't want to hurt you by using the bathroom, they just want to use the bathroom. Uh, Biology does not discredit the existence of trans people or non-binary people. Don't use science to try and justify harmful ideas. Um, Like the idea that gender is binary, which is an oversimplification. Uh, like, if you look at nature, gender is really diverse and really complicated. Like, seahorses are the ones who carry the babies. Males. Yeah, the males. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I thought I said that. <laughs> Nail seahorses.
2: I I know what you're trying to say. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you, Gareth and Matt, for being in this studio with us today. I think both of your experiences and your knowledge has been hugely valuable, at least to me and certainly, uh, I would imagine, to our listeners and and Jim, of course. Um, So if some of our listeners do want to develop some more transliteracy, we've put a bunch of resources on uh, MindingTheBrainPodcast.com. Um, there's always more that we can be learning, particularly as I would say, I, I you know, I strongly identify as a queer ally. I think there's always ways of knowing, ways of thinking, ways of talking that we can further improve. Um, so I know I'm, I'm definitely going to tap in on some of these resources. So thanks again, everybody.
1: This episode of Minding the Brain was edited by me, Mike Contos, and brought to you by the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences, and the Faculty of Science at Carleton University and made possible, in part, by all the variations of gender, sex, and sexuality, which are found across nature and make our world a more vibrant and interesting place. Theme music is Plucked by Michael Terry. Additional music for this episode by Lilo Sound. More episodes and show notes
2: available at MindingTheBrainPodcast.com.